Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. This episode of the Artelligence Podcast is a panel that took place at Art Basel Miami Beach in December 2015. Video of that panel is available on YouTube. My name is Marion Manneker, and I just want to briefly introduce the panel and then give you a little overview of what we're going to try to accomplish. Uh, there's a lot to talk about, so I want to get going fairly quickly. Uh, in the middle is Wilbur Ross, who's one of the world's leading collectors of surrealism. Uh, he has a long career as a turnaround specialist and an investor that culminated in opening his own firm, W.L. Ross & Company. Next to him on his right is Stephen Tannenbaum, who is, along with his wife, Lisa, uh, one of Art News's top 200 collectors. He's also the founder of Golden Tree Asset Management, a bottom-up credit market force with $25 billion under management. And next to me is Jeffrey Deitch, who's held just about every role in the art market I can think of, possibly art restorer as well, but I, I don't know about that. Uh, he started his career as an advisor at Citibank. He became a dealer with his own uh, uh, gallery, Deitch Projects. Uh, he's been a curator, a writer, a museum director. We're going to talk today about a fairly simple question. Now that art has become an asset, we're in a, an environment where the macroeconomics are changing. Interest rates in the U.S. will be going up. The emerging markets are struggling. The global economy is slowing. We're going to try and talk about what becomes of art as an asset in that kind of environment. But first, we're going to start by answering sort of a simple question, which is, how did art become so valuable over the last few years? And I think we'll start, Wilbur has a, a, a few points, uh, and then Steve as well, and then we'll, we'll hear from Jeffrey. Thank you. I think there are around 20 reasons that are very fundamental why art has become valuable. First of all, there are more billionaires in the world than ever. And in fact, there are more billionaires now in China than even in the U.S., plus lots elsewhere. And untold numbers of people have hundreds of millions of dollars. So there's more money at the high end. People live longer and have more time to collect. Museums and colleges have educated people to art appreciation. Every year there are more private museums that keep buying art. Foundations have become a very tax-efficient way to buy art. Major art is basically dollar-denominated, so it's a currency hedge for foreigners in a world where the euro, the yuan, and the yen are all weak. People have lost faith in paper money and won hard assets, and low interest rates make it easy to invest in non-yielding assets like art. Meanwhile, Citibank, Carlyle, and others are happy to lend on art. Internet art databases and auction bidding sites have made the market a little bit less opaque, and auction houses have made art buying into theater maybe into coliseums with gladiators. Both conventional and social media constantly promote art. Corporate collections keep expanding. Proliferation of fairs like Art Basel 
make art more accessible to the public. New public buildings and private developments now routinely include art. Contemporary art is accessible without deep historical knowledge, and the scale of temporary art fits loft-type dwellings. Important art conveys social status, and people like to associate with artists and curators, even with dealers. The range of art objects has broadened to include multiples and works conceived by but not touched by the artist. Some collectors have become quasi-art dealers, buying, selling, swapping, and even guaranteeing auction prices. And finally, all collectibles have appreciated. In fact, the best price performers over the last 10 years haven't been art. They've been vintage automobiles, of all things. So those are fundamental factors that I think will continue to prevail regardless what happens in business cycles. Steve, do you want to add to that? Very com comprehensive list, Wilbur. So I, uh, the only thing I'd add is whenever you have something that works, but people like getting involved with something that works. And this has worked pretty much since the 80s. So I think there's a, a lot of people who've had a good experience buying brand name artists and watching it appreciate broadly over the years. Uh, Jeffrey, can you both comment on that, but also possibly comment a little bit broader on the idea of this art economy that isn't just the buying and selling of works of art, but the, the presence of art in cities, countries, and regions that's grown uh, over the last few years? It's not just an economic phenomenon, it's a cultural phenomenon. And the answer is right here around us at Art Basel. This, this is extraordinary. And people want to be part of this. You can see there are serious buyers who want to be part of it and a large public that wants to know about it. And there's a tremendous change between the tiny inside art community that I first saw in the 70s and the tens of thousands of people now who want to be part of this, not just here. You have a similar phenomenon at Art Basel Hong Kong and any, any other countries where there were only three or four people connected with contemporary art 20 years ago. You just mentioned Hong Kong uh, and, and there's been a, a, a growing number of um, malls being built in China that feature art, uh, usually a rotating exhibition of art. And I know you've just been to Beirut where a similar sort of luxury retail and private museum complex is opened. And I just wanted to ask you a little bit about that. I think the one in Beirut has sort of a specific uh, role in the community, but it, it does get us a little bit toward this underpinning of why art is becoming valuable. The, the K-11 art malls in China, Tony Salame's HD Foundation in Beirut, there are examples of this recent convergence between interest in progressive art, fashion, fine cuisine, lifestyle. So it's very different. And I began with a kind of a special elite person who followed art. Now it's much wider. And so something like the K-11 art malls in China 
That's just beginning. I think there are just two of them now, but there are plans for more. And fascinating to think of how that is going to expand the market. They're also building an infrastructure where one doesn't exist. There are not museums that have been there for 50, 100 years. They're being built together as sort of multi-purpose. Sure, there's not the culture of the art museums that began in the United States decades ago and civic structures, so it's quite different. So, Wilbur, one of the points that I find most interesting is your mention of art as a hedge, uh, one, that people don't have much faith in, in many of the currencies to begin with, and that between the various currencies, art can be used as a hedge, either money going in or uh, out of it. As we go into or maybe exit the lower for longer interest rate environment we've been in for the last uh, six or seven years, how do you think that will take place? Will it increase uh, uh, using art as a hedge, or will it make art less valuable? Well, I think a couple of things. I, I think collecting is a highly contagious, incurable disease. And I don't think that rising interest rates within some sort of reason is going to change it. What I do think, though, is that sometimes it gets a little overdone. At one of the November evening contemporary auctions, 45 different artists had a piece that sold for a million dollars or more, plus the buyer's commission. So when you think about that, if each of them had a, an oeuvre of 500 works, that equals $25 billion of market value for those 45 artists. And if that art appreciated just 5% a year for 15 years, and they made another 500 works during it, then you would have 50 billion of value from their original stuff and another 50 billion from the new stuff. Now, for that to be true, this period of contemporary art has to be the most valuable and creative one in the history of the world. So while I think art in general is fine, I think selectivity is going to become more and more of an issue as we get to a little less permissive environment. Well, Steve, can you talk about uh, that? I mean, it, sure. it's clear that there's a, a benchmark of a, of a million dollars. Uh, uh, the, the assets that yep. will be loaned again start, start at a million dollars. How do you in that environment either buy or sell? Sure. Um, a, a couple things. I think that my, my guess is there's going to be, you know, maybe 10 or 15% of those, you know, call it 10 names that genuinely will probably have, um, with uh, Wilbur's math, the market cap that's really high. Um, my guess is there are a lot of artists who don't have 500 works of the quality that were, you know, um, at auction. I do think that, um, you know, just to, uh, on my day job, I'm a portfolio manager. And so uh, you tend to look at a portfolio of stocks um, in the sense that there are certain things you feel really excited about. There are, cer there are certain things you feel less excited about. And then there are certain artists, um, kind of like in music, where the artist had really great periods of time. And then, you know, and that's the focus on. So I, I do think that there's, um, from a selective from a selectivity standpoint, it's going to work. Well. Um, you just have to be discerning. I do think that um, 
I think every period, it's almost like if you go to that, um, I think uh, MoMA had this exhibit of Art of Our Time. And I, um, I saw the show this, um, I guess it was uh, summer. And uh, to me, it seemed like, boy, I, there wouldn't have been my selection of the different artists they chose as gee, the best art of our time. There were a couple that I thought were terrific. And I was talking to a curator at another museum about this, and she goes, Steve, every art of our time has the same thing. So my, my, my guess is Wilbur's comment is probably, for the last decade, correct, and um, that uh, there's only a few that are really going to um, um, stand the test of time. I do think also when you look at the um, store of value, um, if people, particularly if you look at the natural resource companies that our countries, um, there, um, which have had a huge um, move up with oil, and now as oil's come down and commodities have come down, um, you know, or, or more um, looking for liquidity, the fact that they diversified, and that's really a hedge that I think Wilbur is also referring to, they're, they feel great, they're thankful that they bought, whether it's a Picasso, a de Kooning, um, um, a Twombly, etc., as a store of wealth. And it's something that, uh, that they um, recognize as more fungible. I think one of the aspects of fungible also is can you, you know, do other people, um, are they willing to um, agree on an approximate value? And I think with art, um, maybe different than real estate in certain, in, um, except for certain key, key periods, there's probably, call it 50 artists to 100 artists where people will agree that there's a minimum valuation which they can feel good about and maybe get a loan on, et cetera. So I think that's also play, played um, um, in the current environment. Jeffrey, I wanted to ask about, um, and, and I, when I say emerging markets, it's way too broad a uh, category, but we have seen in the auctions at least um, significant participation for modern and impressionist works at very high prices from buyers from Asia, from the Gulf states, uh, a few years ago from uh, Russia. I'm assuming they're participating in, in sort of a cultural but also an economic way. And, and I wonder if you could comment a little bit, since you work with those uh, uh, clients from those markets, a little bit how that is that an approach the same? Is it where it's, it's a whole global audience of uh, wealthy people, or is it a different perspective when you're buying uh, from Indonesia or from, uh, you know, uh, uh, Beirut, as it were? Well, there's a tendency when there's analysis of the New York auctions, the writers will say extensive buying from China, or the Russians are in, or the Russians are out, as if it's a big abstraction but it's all about individuals. And this is one of the fascinating things to me about the art market, that there are essential macroeconomic trends that affect what happens in the market. But essentially, it is about individuals. It's about extraordinary people uh, who often really educate themselves, get deeply involved, get the confidence, so they can spend the money, what it takes to build a great collection. And these kinds of individuals are now emerging in Indonesia, Taiwan, Russia. Uh, I'm 
work with some collectors in the Middle East who become very active. And in Lebanon, for instance, it's very social. So when Tony Salamik comes around to the art fair, he would come to my gallery, he would bring a group of friends and say, well, you should get one of these too. So when you get Tony, you get three, four other people as well. Uh, it's how things work there. And so you don't need hundreds of people coming from Russia or China. You need three or four people who, like collectors we might know here in our home cities, who are passionate, educated, and want to participate. And these single people, individuals, make a very significant impact. When you look at the auctions, see, it's not 20 people bidding on a work. It's often two people. That's all it takes. You know, six or eight bidders is considered you know, a, a huge crowd chasing after a, a work of art. And, and I think there's, uh, we talked about this uh, uh, previously, there's an interesting story in how uh, uh, Mirandi became a sort of valued artist among Chinese collectors a few years ago, not, not through any global trend, but because one very influential person, uh, uh, an artist, had uh, uh, purchased some Mirandis and it, uh, people uh, became more interested and followed uh, his lead. Uh, can you talk a little bit about just sort of the, the, the social way that, that that works? Sure. Well, key curators, museum directors, dealers, collectors who are really generous, they're essential in building the art market as much as the macroeconomic trends build the art market. So you, you might have noticed there are some prestigious Chinese artists, see them at the art fair, and they're with an entourage of other artists, friends, and collectors. And the artists say, this, you should get this. And that's what they get. And I think we all know particularly important influential individuals who inspire other people. So this, this personal side is a big part of it. It separates the art market from commodities markets, for sure. But it doesn't change, um, it, doesn't change it from being a store of value as well. Right? They may be following a social lead and participating in something that is social, but the choice to actually take their uh, surplus money and put it into art and believe that it's something valuable... Uh, is still a uh, an economic choice at, at, at bottom, no different from buying an airplane or a, a, a boat or anything else. Actually, I mean, just when you buy an airplane or a boat, it depreciates. You know, I mean, that's right off the bat would be. But I, you know, um, but I, I also think to just go to go what Jeffrey was saying that they're tastemakers, you know, and you know whether you have a museum in Venice and people come see what um, on what you put there and people go, wow, you know, this is what he's, out of his vast collection, is choosing to display. You know, it's, it's an interesting data point. And it's also, it's provocative. And, you know, you also, from the um, artist, appreciate that if you're selected by a tastemaker, some artist will go, wow, you know, I really want to help, um, you know, put, put my best foot forward. Uh, Wilbur, I... 
wanted to ask a little bit about the surrealism market, which has sort of grown in the last few years, uh, more, I think, in the visibility of some of the, the, the auctions. But it's a good example of a market that may not have been um, as uh, uh, sexy or attractive, but it certainly provides opportunities. And, and this is almost the opposite of either trying to be a tastemaker or just following uh, your own muse, as it were. Well, for somebody who deals in distressed securities, surrealism is a natural thing to collect, it seems to me. Um, but it had been a relatively minor footnote to the history books of modern art until art historians and museum curators guided collectors and the public to it. Magritte's recent rise proves the point. He died in 1967 but he's had more museum exhibitions in the last 15 years than in any prior period when he was dead or when he was alive. And it includes the Gilles de Palme and the Malol in Paris, the Beiler in Basel, Albertina in Vienna, San Francisco's MoMA, the Tate in Liverpool, Rome's Museo del Risorgimento. Milan's Palazzo Reale, Copenhagen's Louisiana, Scottish National Gallery, and so on. But two exhibitions were the most important by far. L.A. County Museum of Art, 2006 show, Magritte and Contemporary Art, subtitled The Treachery of Images, showed his importance to 30 leading contemporary artists including Archweiger, Baldessari, Gober, Gusten, Johns, Kuhns, Lichtenstein, Oldenburg, Rauschenberg, Rosenquist, Ruscha, and Warhol. And in fact, Johns, Kuhns, and Rauschenberg all owned Magritte's. Um, pop art arguably would not have occurred if Magritte hadn't pioneered the placement of ordinary objects in unusual contexts to engage viewers' imaginations and intellects. And he was also an early experimenter with collage and with treating words as art objects rather than as titles and using titles that had no obvious relevance to the work depicted. Um, the other major show was in 2014, Magritte, The Mystery of the Ordinary, 1926 to 38, which started at MoMA, went to the Menil Chicago Art Institute with support from the Magritte Museum in Brussels, which in 2013 became only the third museum dedicated to a single surrealist. And that exhibition refocused collector interest from the later, more accessible works to the earlier, I think, more intellectually challenging ones. And as he became more and more in demand, interest spilled over to the other Belgian surrealists and others, Dalvo and ones like that, and more recently even to the female surrealists. And museum support will continue. Pompidou in Paris doing a big show in 2017. So I think with non-living artists, museum curators and art historians, are the key tour guides, as opposed to the dealers and curators and collectors in the, in the more recent stuff. Well, I'd, I'd like to add also artists. Yeah. And the, so 
I have an exhibition organized here in Miami. It's called Unrealism. It's in the design district. I haven't seen it. I hope you'll visit it tomorrow. And so Suzanne Paget, who's now the director of the Louis Vuitton Foundation, who curated the Great Bacabia exhibition in Paris, and Glenn Lowry, director of the Museum of Modern Art, who's putting on a big Bacabia show, they went through the exhibition and they said, Bacabia is really the foundation of this. This is 65 contemporary artists. And so it's the artists who are reshuffling the deck of art history. And what artists have been doing recently makes surrealism, Bacabia, who has surrealist sides, he's more complicated than just a surrealist, but who bring back the importance of this. So I'm always fascinated how artists redefine art history and in the process of that reset values in the art market. And then someone has to play a role in mediating that market, helping it grow, whether it's an auction house specialist uh, taking a role or a dealer. Steve? Sure. I was going to say, and echoing with what Wilbur said, if you want to do something special, you can't do what everybody's doing at that moment. And so Wilbur had, had a view um, in terms of Magritte and the movement and did, did something special. And his view was, people will see what I see and they'll continue to build on what I see. That's really, um, uh, I think, think an important theme. I remember one of the first things um, Lisa and I bought um, was a Boslitz hero painting. Um, and he was somewhat out of favor. And we thought he was super important, and these paintings were super important. And we thought people would see what we see. <laughs> and it eventually occurred. But you have to have um, courage and you also have to have confidence in your analysis. And I think that's really important, and that's one of the fun parts about, about collecting. Well, but it, it doesn't happen with total outliers. It, it, we often see that artists that are recognized and familiar jump up in value, even though people are, uh, know their work and, and are invested in the, their, their work. Go but, but you have to have... If you believe that... Um, like I think Paris Gartstead had a super Boslitz show earlier this year. If you believe that there's going to be and there's going to be a, a Boslitz um, hero uh, museum show um, next year in Germany, uh, that it's a um, you know if you have a view, then other people will put it together. And you you actually depending upon as as a collector, we're we're not necessarily going to buy um, enough to put on a show, and then you know we're. Though not not in the uh, you know, we're in the buy and hold you know um, camp, but there are other people who you know have a different role and believe. I guess this happened with Moreau a few years ago, where they will see an opportunity, they'll um, purchase some works, and then they'll put a show together. So, but but I think that um, the dealers who do well are the ones who can anticipate the trends and um, or realize that they're into something good and then um, um, recognize that with, um, with a show. And, and there's a distinction between very serious collectors or tastemakers, if we want to use the, that term, of people who are following their own ideas and, and maybe tr trying to describe something of importance to themselves, and then buyers. And, and the, I think the big difference in the art market today is there are many more people who want to participate 
but maybe not participate at the level of being a full-time collector, uh, uh, doing all of that work, putting all that time in, taking all of those uh, risks. And I'm not sure it's a, a bad thing for there to be buyers uh, in this market, people who want to own something that's recognizable uh, and uh, uh, something that will hold its value, will be a store of value in so, some way. And, and that seems to be part of the dynamic of art becoming an asset is there are more people who can participate without necessarily gaining all the knowledge uh, that's not, I mean, I think the comparison to being a, a distressed debt investor and being able to do all the extra work and what a, uh, a, a collector or a dealer do, does is an interesting one. And then there have to be retail uh, buyers as well out there. Yeah, but those stray buyers make trouble because they drive prices up indiscriminately. That's, that's the bad part. I, I got to believe, and Jeffrey, you'll, you'll have a view on this. You know, you read books on Duveen. It doesn't seem like his buyers were any more knowledgeable than today's buyers. So it's just, I think it's just the way it is. Well, in fact, remember Duveen's famous comment, I make my living by the art I sell and my fortune by the art I keep. Now, in his case, since a lot of what he sold were fakes, it's quite <laughs> literally true. He also sold that he said that he sold Duveen's, so there's, <laughs> there's, you can read that either uh, uh, way. Um, so give me a pro and a con about art being an asset. Uh, we either treat it as it's a terrible thing or it's the greatest thing ever, but I think it's obviously got good and bad sides to, to it. Can, can you, you know, do you mind sort of playing devil's advocate or, or sure, give me? I, you know? I, I think any asset that's done well people forget can do poorly. And I think that um, there's going to be a correlation to um, how art does to other, other assets. So I think that people just have to remind themselves that the market can go down and not overextend yourself and buy what you love because if it's at half the price a few years from now, you still love it. And, um, you know, so that, you know, but, but I do think what can go up goes down like any other asset. And yeah. you, know, it's, you, know, you look at a currency, you look at a house, etc. Yeah, and particularly art is a peculiarly illiquid investment. It's not like a stock or a commodity that trades every minute every day. It trades at very infrequent intervals and with unreliable data points. So you can have big gaps between where something similar traded last time and next time. I think of art as an ideal intergenerational asset or a lifetime asset. So you know, we look at some of the you know, illustrious families in Europe and where the third generation isn't really capable of managing the business or you know, maybe <laughs> dissolute habits, but the art is often still there. And it's fascinating to see that sometimes 200 years later, there is still great art in the family that aristocratic families, industrial families, can still continue to sell, to maintain the lifestyle uh, 200 years after the fortune was first made. Well, for generations, the Rothschild family asset deployment strategy was one-third securities, one-third real estate, and one-third art. And they were pretty good at all three, so it worked out very well for them. And do you think people are collecting with that sense today? I think the reasons people collect vary so widely, there's no one-size-fits-all. 
it seems like a good time to see if anyone has questions. Uh, I believe there's a microphone floating uh, uh, around. I see someone back here in the corner. Um, hello. A quick question following the final conversation on art as an asset class. Why has it taken so long for there to be a U.S.-based art fund or private equity art fund to be established and sold through SEC-supervised firms? Thank you. Well, there have been art funds. By and large, I don't know that their performance has been so outstanding. The UK Coal Pension Fund, or British Railways Pension Fund, some years ago invested quite a bit in art, and they made a 7 or so percent rate of return, but it was not no light shooting out. The Chinese Porcelains was their great play, and there is another St. Louis investor whose name escapes me at the moment who started a fund that's done also very well with Chinese Porcelains. Um, I don't want to speak for the, the rest of the panel. I do think one of the big problems with art funds in general is people who want to buy art want to actually own the art. That's part of the return that you get. There are better places to get a financial return. But even more importantly, there are a lot of art funds in the art market. They're private dealers. Many of them have a, a backing from multiple sources, so they're like a fund. They may not be SEC uh, registered, and they have superior knowledge, and they buy and sell uh, works that will appreciate. So, uh, you know, and there are a number of people with strong financial backgrounds who have had second uh, careers uh, in, in the art market. So I think that sort of vitiates against someone just saying, hey, we can raise the assets, but we don't know how to deploy them, or, or uh, you know, and we'll open an art fund. One of the, yes, one of the issues is that for a serious investor, it makes much more sense to get involved with one of the great experienced art dealers and discreetly participate in some of the purchases much better than all the administrative issues with of a publicly listed fund. And when people ask me, what do you think, should I invest in an art fund? I always answer, just, just buy some great works of art yourself. You'll have the reward of the artwork, and if you do it right, some appreciation as well. Um, don't have much, much to add. Um, haven't seen an art fund whose performance seems uh, all that special. And um, so, you know, which is quite, quite a statement. It's actually when uh, you think of uh, what Wilbur was saying, so 7%, but when you think of the illiquidity of it, the fact that um, it probably didn't beat the stock market, just seems like a um, pretty mediocre investment. And at the very top end, um, a, a number of individuals have seen auction houses as a proxy, uh, either by buying them outright or trying to buy them from a, another owner, or um, buying the stock of a publicly traded uh, one. And, and I, I'm referring to all two and a half, three auction houses at one time or another have had people participating pretty much in that way, trying to treat it almost as either an information source, an, an access point, or a, an art fund of one form or another. Another question? Sorry, you and you. There used to be a saying in a world of contrarians, if you're not, you are. So you got us thinking about Beanie Babies, uh, Davy Crockett hats, and lunchboxes with Hopalong Cassidy on them. 
But we just heard a little bit about passion. So let me ask you to go out on a limb if you each have a message to the school boards and the cities which think that by cutting funding for art and music and the future clients of the next generation, they're somehow helping us. Anyone care to comment on school board public policy? I think that's only one of the many crimes the public education system is committing right now. I think it's failed the public in almost all regards, this being one of them, vocational training being another one. And I should point out that the, the media has created a lot more, uh, I think Wilbur mentioned this at the beginning, acknowledgement, recognition, and visibility for art that isn't a substitute for uh, education. And certainly, we, you know, art historical education uh, seems to be lacking in other ways. But there is a lot more information out there than there's ever been before. Uh, I will add to it, not just uh, the future art buyers, but the future creators. Uh, and that may be even more important. Uh, but I would like to ask you if you could speak about um, the art market for those artists who are unique and wonderful and doing good art, but very difficult for them to sell between the uh, 5,000 and 30,000. Talking to many galleries, they are saying that the market for this middle um, sort of market uh, artist is completely gone. It's like the middle class is not buying anymore. And especially with art fairs and uh, auction houses, it simply killed that part of the art market. How can you help the artist to do otherwise? That's, that's a serious problem. And so... Remember when, when I began in the 70s, uh, someone interested in minimalism wouldn't just buy Carl Andre and Saul Witt. They would buy a whole group of artists like Count Panza did. But today, people, because of panels like this and the information about the art market, they're very concerned with the resale market, the secondary market, and say, the price is $20,000, they want to know, show me the auction records. Show what will I get if I have to sell. And the reality is, is that only a tiny percentage of artists have a secondary market. And so if people are too conscious of the investment quality of the art, they will veer away from all the art that will simply just give them stimulation, intellectual pleasure, et cetera. So uh, this, this is an issue, I know what you're talking about, where uh, artists who aren't in that league, who have auction records, are having, and galleries that focus on those artists, are having a more difficult time compared to others who are participating in the boom. It's also worth pointing out that there are many artists you can see in this fair who are on multiple booths, so they clearly have a market, but they don't have an auction market, so there are no records, there's none of that visibility. And it is important when we talk about the ecosystem that there be numerous dealers, 
you know, advocating, owning, taking a position in these various artists because that's what generates the visibility that eventually gets them to auction or at least the visibility at an art fair that people gives people the confidence that there is, um, uh, I, I guess, enough interest to make this artist viable, uh, you know, uh, uh, as a, an object you can eventually sell. Sometimes the auction houses actually seek out the artists. Hillary and I were in Hong Kong when it was announced that Sotheby's was doing the first big auction of Chinese contemporary, and the local dealers went batshit because Sotheby's had literally commissioned art to put into the auction and was promising prices and turned out delivered them that were higher than what the local dealer could get and with a lower commission to the artist. So auction houses have become a very, very, maybe disproportionately important phenomenon in price setting. I, I, I do think there's a natural desire of dealers if there's an artist who's commercial but isn't necessarily um, um, bankable to be able to represent them because they can charge higher fees. You take the top artist, the dealers get a, a much lower commission you take commercial artists who maybe aren't as well-known, they can get a um, higher percentage of the sales. So I do think there is, from a commercial standpoint, um, a, a reason to, um, uh, for, for dealers to seek out these, these types of artists. Um, so. uh, I want to take the next question, but before, can we get a microphone up here to the fir first row? Afterwards, there's a question, and then there's one in the back row. But someone has the microphone right now. Who wants to make it? Please. Uh, you, don't want to. you have the microphone. Ask the question. I was just recently reading an article in the New York Times, and I was not aware of this, that in Delaware, you're able to purchase art and store it into a warehouse and really save on the taxes. And I understand it's so big that they're actually building another warehouse. I was wondering... So, so uh, on the problem is, is, is you can't actually use it in New York because then you have to pay a usage tax. So if what you want to do is trade art, it's a great way to trade art. If you want to actually live with your art, you can't do it because, like, for instance, Florida has a usage tax, New York has a usage tax. So, um, um, so that's, that's what the, the problem would be. There, there are certain, um, I guess in California, if you're, um, from what I understand, if you store it in a museum that um, you can get around a tax, there's a tax angle um, having it stored in a museum as well. But uh, Yes, in Oregon. But not, not everybody wants to live in a warehouse, though. <laughs> or go to their warehouse to see an art. I, I also think that the whole Freeport idea is, is a very... Um, sexy one, and we hear a lot about it, but it's never entirely clear how much it's used and for what purposes. It certainly makes sense if you are moving art that you are going to sell it to put it in a, a free port for three to six months. It's not necessarily clear, unless you really are using it as a bank, that it makes sense to hold art in those places where you can't, uh, as you hear, you can't have use of it in, in some way. Hi. So the art market's real hot right now, and the, and the prices are high. How, how, how tough is it to, to buy art right now, especially like Mr. Ross, you come from distressed debt. 
the world to just find companies on distress. I mean, how tough is it to overpay when you know you're, you're in love with something, but you want to pay for it, but you know it's over, overpriced? Well, at one of the recent auctions in November, I was for the second time the underbidder on the same piece. It's always easy to overpay for anything. Just uh, look at anyone's experience in eBay. Do, do you feel um, a, a, a particular way of setting limits? I mean, in a rapidly changing market, in either direction, how do you come up with a price that's the right price for you? Um, I've never bid for myself in auctions. I've always had somebody else bid. Safer so, that way? Um, yes, but also, so I know what I'm going to pay before, before it happens. And um, I've had kind of interesting results. Some of the best um, purchases have been um, right at our limit. <laughs> and some of our best purchases have been, you know, uh, it seemed like um, I was the only bidder, you know, there. And um, would have paid, called me, you know, significantly more. I know how to stop bidding when my wife stops nudging me. <laughs> Jeffrey, your clients, uh, is there a way of either the advice you give them or, or in uh, their own setting of limits when there's, as, you know, as we just said, the information is still only whatever's happened in the past. It won't tell you what the right mo price at that moment is. I've, I've worked with buyers who say, I'm a value buyer, and we're going to set a limit. We're not going to go any higher. So I've tried to advise people, like, two years go by, and they buy virtually nothing. And meanwhile... The art market is rising and harder to get great works. So it's an art of reaching, maybe having the, for, the belief in the value of work beyond other people. You know, no one wants to pay a crazy inflated price, but most of the work that I bought for myself and that I've advised people to buy, we've had to reach for. Sometimes you get very lucky and you get a very good deal but uh, I've, I've paid double the high estimate for works, and later on they seem very good values. So I think it, it's a, a matter of belief and confidence. You know, often, often just, just in an auction, sometimes they'll, they'll have a range that's an unrealistic range. I remember there was um, a Stella drawing. That was a great um, scramble drawing, uh, early scramble drawing at a Christie's auction, it went for 10 times the estimate, and uh, it was something we were probably, you know, maybe three times the estimate, uh, was where we stopped um, bidding, but it was clear that the estimate really wasn't reality. So that's another issue when you're um, looking at auction, is how realistic is what their, um, what other ranges are. And they want to have a live, they want to have a lot, um, a lively interest on the one hand, and on the other hand, if they put a range, they by law have to sell it within the range that they put down. And I would estimate that 20 to 30% of things in auctions don't make the low estimate. Another 30 or so percent go within estimate, and the rest go above estimate. Wouldn't you guess that's right, Jeff? Do you, you know, use the same part of your brain, for lack of a better term, when you think about pricing art as you do in your day jobs? Um... I think that I realized that um, 
the liquidity in my day job is if I make a mistake, it's easy to get out quickly. I think in art, I think that the ramifications of, of having second thoughts. And I also think that um, it's very hard to uh, start slowly in, um, in a work because you're either buying a work or you're not buying a work or you, know, you probably don't want to start with an insignificant work of an artist. You know, so um, so I, I think think um, there it's different. On the other hand, you do have to force rank your your opportunities, and so from that part, it's very similar. You know, is this if I have a budget and these are the artists I'm interested in? You know, how does this? How's it likely to um, stack up? So from that standpoint, it's uh, you know it is similar. I find the thing that haunts you the most is the one you didn't buy and you keep thinking about it later on. Want a question up here? Uh, thank you very much. Um, Bloomberg recently reported during the recent market downturn that a lot of investors were turning towards short-term loans or even selling some of their art to cover some liquidity calls. Uh, do you think that going forward, especially in times of volatility, that art could be more correlated to other asset classes? And the second part of that question would be, what do you think it would take to see a downturn in the art market, if it's been working so well since the 80s, what, what would it take for a meaningful downturn? We've got the guts to answer that. Well, uh, about margin calls, I don't think that many serious buyers buy art on margin. I don't know if you agree with that. Um, I, I think um, at the end collectors, to the extent that um, you, you have... Um, Collectors who have loans, and the loans are, you know, real estate, art, etc. Yeah, maybe at the margin. I do think if you have people stop paying prices, and um, like I thought the blast auctions were somewhat thin, and you see it continuing to get thinner, um, I think that you know people will you know take take a step back. But I I don't think it's going to be. Um, I don't think people have a lot of leverage, and I don't think the banks. Um, lend that aggressively, and they tend to, from what I understand, go on people's net worth um, more so than on the pieces. So I don't know if, if that if that helps you, um, um, but I do I do think if you know if for whatever reason um, you have some you know some tough auctions or whatever, maybe people you know that you know I, I guess there could be um, people could reconsider what they think the value is. That may change, or at least there are people trying to change that, uh, loaning money against art as the asset itself. And I think that will be one of those interesting effects on the market. If you can both own art and still have liquidity from it, not complete, but uh, substantial liquidity, that may change buying habits. It may make things more volatile uh, in ways you're suggesting. It may actually spread more money throughout the market. It's not... If you think of a collectible, a collectible is not a great thing to leverage up because it doesn't pay anything, and it's relatively illiquid with high, transa- with high um, transaction costs. So I, I'm not saying there aren't people who will find ways to get expensive loans, but it just doesn't strike me as something that's going to be broadly done. I don't get it done by the get-rich-quick people who want to trade it, and I think they'll be disappointed. The last time there was a true crash in the art market was 1990. And in 2008, financial crisis, 
Art was remarkably resilient. You did not find too many distressed sellers. Uh, what happened in 1990, unique circumstances, an entire Japanese uh, group of buyers withdrawing at once, other things, and yes, it, it can happen, but for me, the early 90s was the most fruitful period in the art market, and that's when I was able to buy for myself some extraordinary things, that many of which I still have. So there are some cycles. The down markets, as Wilbur would be, uh, attest to, maybe are more interesting for serious collectors than the boom markets. The only thing is high prices bring out good pieces. Yes, and there's this dynamic of you, you want to buy into the right environment, uh, and it's not necessarily the same because it's so illiquid as um, financial markets, either uh, debt or equities. Yeah, hi. This is a question for Mr. Ross here and Mr. Talman. Um, sounds like you look at your collection as a portfolio of assets. If that's the case, what space in that portfolio you give to emerging artists and or artists with no secondary market? In, in general, we um, have um, some emerging artists and some um, artists with no secondary uh, market, but I, uh, I would say that's a large part of the, of the portfolio um, or, or of the collection. I guess... On portfolio is your word. We we prefer to think of it as a collection, since I think of a portfolio as something to trade, and a collection as something to own. And so, um, you know, uh, so you know, that's that's how we how we think on think of it. But I've had uh, artists who um, you know we'll go to a fair like this and go, it's it's great, and we bought you know artists and um, you know have really enjoyed living with it. But in general, that's not um, um, you know a large part of our collection. Yeah, we buy some Chinese contemporary artists and some Lolan sculpture, but that, that's about it. It's not an important part of our collecting so far. But, but you're not buying either the, the major pieces or those pieces because you're viewing it as a portfolio. You're buying it because you view it as a collection. Uh, I don't know if a portfolio is what keeps you up at night and a collection is what helps you sleep better, but it certainly seems like there's a, a difference in intent of, of what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, to me, the concept of a portfolio sort of signifies you're doing it for investment rather than for enjoyment. And that's not really what we're doing, and I don't think it's what Steve's doing. In fact, I, I'd say I've... Um very rarely have I been a portfolio manager for about 25 years. I've actually, um, late at night, been thinking about my portfolio. You know, yeah, maybe maybe during 2008, but uh, very rarely. Often, I'll be talking at least early in the morning about our collection or what do you think about this and how do you think it stacks up to uh, you know, another piece by that artist, et cetera, et cetera. We have one in the back. I would just ask if all four of you can make a prediction about how you think the auctions will fare in May in New York in relationship to November. <laughs> well, I think they'll continue to hold them. <laughs> no, I think they're, they're going to be more careful with guarantees, with high guarantees. And it was very interesting to look at Christie's auction, where you saw 
some of you saw the, the auction of the Khan collection of works of Alexander Calder, where it was a real auction with very reasonable estimates and just very enthusiastic bidding, and where estimates were pushed up way too high with guarantees, there was no one or just the guarantor. And a lot of us who are long-term participants of the market hope that they'll see that and become, you know, go back to presenting real auctions. And I th think if you look at the day sales where there's a lot of active selling and bidding and strong numbers, it's clear that there's a big appetite uh, for art and it may in many cases be um, suppressed by the prices or the estimates that are being demanded. And so it's just moving in different directions. And I think the auctions will be dependent upon their ability to, as it always is, but ability to bring the material to market that will excite people uh, and that they'll compete over. I think Jeffrey, though, put his finger on an important thing. This phenomenon of the guarantee is a very interesting, very tricky phenomenon that's become quite, quite prevalent in, in recent periods. And you saw it at Sotheby's where they pushed, I think, the prices very high on Al Taubman's collection, and they're struggling to break even on it because they ended up, the uh, family played them off against Christie's, and I guess if you're Sotheby's and your former chairman, the state comes up, you really don't want to have Christie's get it, although it, it may have turned out to be a better economic decision to do so. Last question. Okay, as we're talking about finality, uh, what do you plan on doing with your collections if you don't have children or relatives? Are you planning on donating your collection to a public institution? Sure, some... Well, we have children. <laughs> and, we, and we have cho children as well, but I'm sure part of it will end up in, a, in public hands. Part of it already has. Jeffrey, you talked about uh, buying great pieces in the early 90s. Do uh, you want to answer that question as well? Sure. I, I don't have children, and uh, I, I want to be careful. I don't want to make any commitments now, but... Uh, <laughs> Sure, I think it, it's, it's so rewarding to give back to the community and my, my goal ultimately is uh, NYU has the famous Institute of Fine Arts that focuses on old master, older painting, and I'd love to be involved in an institute that studies art of our time. So that's something in my mind. Uh, We'll see what happens. But I'm meanwhile, I'm continuing to buy. If that doesn't work, you could always adopt Stephen or me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank uh, all of you. This has been a, a wonderful hour, and thank you all for coming. Thank you for listening to the Our Intelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 